Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Panado. I have this quote here from, from James White, and because of our early history and our experience of setting dates and of the disappointments that we experienced early on as a denomination, we learned the lesson to be cautious when it comes to unfulfilled prophecy. Now, so he writes this, he says, an exposition of unfulfilled prophecy where the history is not written, the student of prophecy should put forth his propositions with not too much positiveness or not too much certainty, you know, just uh, uh, lest he find himself straying in the field of fancy and of speculation, okay? We don't want to do that, and when we talk about Bible prophecy, there's a lot of speculation out there and a lot of just fantastical ideas that people propose about Bible prophecy. So we want to be careful. Here he continues. There are those who think more of future truth than of present truth. You know, people who aren't living in the present, they're living in the future, or some people live in the past. And he's saying, no, there's a present truth and there's a present responsibility that God is asking you to fulfill. They see little light in the path in which they walk, but they think they see a great light ahead of them. Positions taken upon the Eastern question in, in his days, that was the, that's what they call Daniel 11. Positions taken upon the Eastern questions are based upon prophecies which have not yet met their fulfillment. Here, we should tread lightly and take positions carefully. How does that sound? You know, that sounds good. Just be, let's be cautious here as we move forward. What was interesting is that in his day, they were saying that the, and this was actually Uriah Smith. Uriah Smith was actually the opposite of James White. Um, he knew exactly, and he spoke unhesitatingly about who the king of the north and who the king of the south was. And in his day, um, Uriah Smith said the king of the north is France, and the king of the south is Turkey. And at that time, they were engaged in a war, and he said that that war is going to lead to the end of time, and then Michael's going to stand up in Daniel chapter 12. Well, was he right or was he wrong? wrong. <laughs> well, he was wrong. Because we're still here, right? You know, he, he was wrong about that. So uh, let's be careful. Let's be careful. And that's why James White is writing that. Let's just be careful. Let's be cautious as we come into unfulfilled prophecy. Okay, question number two. Up until Daniel 11, there is only one king that Daniel is interested in, right? And who is that? The little horn. The little horn, which in Daniel chapter 11 is the king of the north, okay? But in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel introduces a new king, which is the king of the south, and the opposition that the king of the north and the king of the south will, um, will face during all that time. So now, I, I turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I, I want us to speak a little bit about the function of the king of the south. His function in Daniel chapter 11. Because, you know, if, if, we, if we just read Daniel 7, and if we just read Daniel 8, it seems like the little horn is completely unopposed. And the little horn can just do whatever he wants. But when we get to Daniel chapter 11, Daniel introduces the king of the south, which is an opposing figure to the king of the north. In other words, the the function of the king of the south in Daniel 11 is that of a restrainer, that of opposition, that of a spoiler for the king of the north. The king of the north can only have so much power because the king of the south is there to stop him. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled 
or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. This is Paul's counsel to the Thessalonian church regarding the end of time. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Does verse 4 sound like anything we've read in the book of Daniel? Yeah, that little horn power. Exalting himself above God, above, above everything that, that is called from God. Verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Verse 6. And now you know what is... What does the Bible say? Holding him back. That's a key word there. Some translations say um, a restrainer, what is restraining him. And so now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness, and I put this up here on the screen, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, there's that word again, will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So what we're seeing here is that the king of the south is functioning as a spoiler, as an opposer to the king of the north. And Paul in this passage is alluding to Daniel chapter 11 and the function of the king of the south being the one holding him back or the restrainer. Without the king of the south opposing the king of the north, the king of the north would have full sway. Okay? So now, um, a little review. Um, who was the king of the south during the Middle Ages? Who was the king of the south during the Middle Ages? Do you remember that? Who was the king of the south during the Middle Ages? During the Middle Ages, king of the south? Islam? Did we say that? Islam? Do you remember that? Islam functioned as the king of the south. Okay, so how did Islam serve as a spoiler or as an opposer or as a restrainer to the king of the north. And the king of the north in the Middle Ages was? Yeah, the, the church. Yeah, the Roman church, the, the church of the Middle Ages. So how did Islam in the Middle Ages function as a restrainer to the king of the north? Hmm? Now, no, notice this quote here. This quote is from uh, J.A. Wiley. J.A. Wiley was a foremost Presbyterian historian. Uh, and he wrote this, his seminal work was called The History of Protestantism. And, uh, and he, says, he says something interesting in that history. It was written in the 1800s about the function of Islam in the Middle Ages. And I think that there's a similar um, concept found in the book The Great Controversy, where Ellen White makes extensive use of Wiley's work and also of, of Merrill Daubigny, uh, the other uh, historian here. But this is what Wiley says. When a crisis arose in the affairs of the Reformation, the Middle Ages, Martin Luther, these kinds of things, uh, when a crisis arose in the affairs of the Reformation and the kings obedient to the Roman see had united their swords to strike and with a blow so decisive that they should not need to strike a second time, then lo and behold, what would happen? The Turk, the Muslims, obeying one whom they knew not, would straightway present himself on the eastern limits of Europe. 
and in so menacing an attitude that the swords unsheathed against the Reformation had to be turned into another quarter. The Turk was the lightning rod that drew off the tempest. Thus did Christ cover his little flock with the shield of the Muslim. Isn't that interesting? And we see that in the Middle Ages. We see the church and the crusades fighting against Islam functioning as a restraining force so that God's people and the message of truth through the Reformation could continue to move forward. How's that sound? Good? So restrainer. So the king of the south acts as a restrainer or as a spoiler to the king of the north. Without the king of the south, the king of the north would have full sway. Okay, so let's move on here. So what we'll do now, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40 through 45. Daniel chapter 11, verse 40 through 45. Our sermon will focus on these last five verses of Daniel chapter 11. At the time of the end... The king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many nations. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. In these verses, we have here the final conflict for the end of time from Daniel's perspective. Now, we've already established that the king of the north in the end time is who? is the Roman church, is the Roman church. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 both tell us that the iron, a symbol of Rome, continues until the very end. Do you remember that? And so Daniel 2 and 7 is telling us that an aspect of Rome, something of the Roman Empire continues until the very end, until the time of the end, and that one thing of Rome that has continued is what? It's religion. It's religion. And uh, no one can deny that the pontiff of Rome, no one can naysay that the church has tremendous influence and power in our day. Now, the king of the south in the end of time, verses uh, 40 through 45, we identified as, as what entity? Do you remember? Atheism. Atheism, that's right. Atheism and secularism. Now, turn in Daniel chapter 11. In verse 35 and and 36, we start getting this this hint of a shift in the identity of the king of the south. Notice what Daniel chapter 11 and verse 35 says. You see that? Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time 
of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Okay, this is signifying a shift. That word there, time, signifies a shift. Things will change at the appointed time. Verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. Verse 40, then it says, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage in battle. So here we see a shift in the end of time with the identity of the king of the south. In the Middle Ages, the king of the south being Islam. But in the end of time, the king of the south is modern day atheism and secularism. In 1798, which is the time period that this verse refers to, it was not Islam that engaged the king of the north in battle in 1798, but who was it? Who was it that destroyed, that gave a deadly blow to the Roman church? Who was it that destroyed its power? It was the ideology and the philosophy arising out of the Enlightenment, out of the French Revolution, atheism, humanism, and secularism. It was these ideas that led Napoleon in 1798 to arrest the Pope with the intention of putting an end to the influence, the interference, and the control of the church in matters of the state. And the church has not fully recovered from that blow. Our governments of today are controlled by a secular agenda, not by a religious one. Atheism and secularism today continue to present the greatest challenge to the dominance of the church and its control over the affairs of the state. So when we go back to Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, it says, at the time of the end, of reference to 1798, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage the king of the north in battle. And the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. And he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. So what we're seeing here in these verses is that we see that fulfillment, again, 1798, um, secularism, giving that blow to the church, to the power of the church, to the control of the church. But then we also see a backlash from the king of the north. The king of the south engages him in battle, but now the king of the north comes out against him in a great rage like a flood. Now, some see in these verses, verse 40, and remember that one verse can cover a large period of time. The events foretold here are a process. They're not singular events that you can put your finger on, but they're processes that take place over time. But some see in these verses here, verse 40, the fall of communism. The fall of communism. Communism, above all other forms of government, was strictly atheistic. God was completely out of the picture. With this philosophy of atheism, Karl Marx was was huge um, with developing these, these ideas. And for Karl Marx, religion was the opium of the masses. It was the drug of the people. Uh, for Karl Marx, it was religion was for the weak. If you have trouble, then people go to religion and they come to praise the Lord and then they think about heaven and it's high, a pie in the sky, and they try to use that as a drug to forget about the troubles that they were facing. And for Karl Marx, his idea was, no, you have your logic, we have science, we have reason, those will fix our problems. Stop relying on religion as a crutch. 
And communism was just the outflow, and, and, and what we saw here um, in the last century was just the outflow of all these religions. And communism, above all other forms, was strictly atheistic. It was one of the greatest challenges that the church faced in this last century. Do you see there? The king of the south and the king of the north engaging in battle. So who let out in the fall of communism? The U.S. was not able to do it by itself. And so the U.S. sought an ally. And who was that ally? The United States joined with the Roman church. Now together they had the power to bring down communism, bring down the king of the south. And so many people see here in verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm out against him. Interesting. And even though communism has fallen, secularism is still a strong force in many countries. And secularism and atheism is still something that the church has to wrestle with before it can have full dominance once again. And so this conflict that we see, the king of the south, the king of the north, and the end of time, the church against secularism and atheism, that that battle and that conflict that we see between faith and secularism, this is one of the dominant and consistent headlines in the media today. We see it all the time. And it's a battle that we've been engaged in for a while. Uh, an example of the fight against uh, faith and, and secularism in our day. Prayer in public schools. Right Now, I think it's been a while since we've heard about that conflict, but how many of you have heard about that? Roe versus Wade and in the, in, in, in the issue of abortion is a huge, is a huge issue between faith and, uh, and secularism. Quality of marriage. And that was all over the, the news a few, a few months ago. Issues have even um, come up with the affordable health care whether uh, Hobby Lobby can provide the morning-after pill to, to its employees. Again, the, this conflict between secularism and faith. And the interesting thing is that people are pushing back against the secular agenda. Um, an example of this, I think, is the Republican presidential nominee process. Very insightful to see how people are fed up with the status quo And people want something different, something totally different, something radically different than what they've had in the past. You see, my friends, people are tired of the secular agenda. Now, what is the Adventist stance among this controversy? Where do we stand between faith and secularism? Where do we stand in this battle of ideologies? Well, as Adventists, we are neither in favor of the right, nor are we in favor of the left. We are neither in favor of the religious agenda, nor of the secular agenda. We, as Seventh-day Adventists, are in favor of protecting the rights of all people, especially the religious rights of all people and ensuring the separation of church and state. Why? It kind of sounds counterintuitive, the separation of church and state. But why? Well, the truth is because every time the church and the state get too cozy, religious freedoms are always squelched. 
It's counterintuitive. I know you, you would think, well, when the church and the state combined, there would be more religious freedom. But history has shown us time and time again that this is not so. In fact, a recent example that we have of this is that in Russia, Russia recently passed a new anti-terrorism law. And that anti-terrorism law was targeting Islamic radicals and Islamic terrorists. But thrown into this bill is that all faiths which are not of the Russian Orthodox persuasion are not allowed to evangelize outside of church-owned properties. In other words, what this means is that the Seventh-day Adventist church can no longer evangelize outside of property which it owns. In other words, if people are to be evangelized, they will have to come onto church property in order to be evangelism. Religious liberty being strictly curtailed when the church and the state become close and united. In summary, verse 40, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40 tells us that in the end of time, the king of the south and the king of the north will engage in battle, the king of the south being secularism and and modern day atheism. But verse 40 tells us that ultimately the king of the north, the Roman church, will come with a full force against the king of the south. And will overcome him. Now let's move on here to verses 41 through 42 and 43. He, the king of the north, will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain the control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. Here, the biblical text begins to use place names, just like it did previously. It mentions the beautiful land. It mentions Edom. It mentions Moab. Um, Verse 43 mentions Libya and uh, the Cushites as well. Are we dealing with literal place names or spiritual and symbolic place names? Spiritual and symbolic. Okay. Uh, How do we know that? Well, first of all, because we have that principle, right? That after the cross, after the cross, God's people are not limited to an ethnic an ethnic nation or an ethnic people, or they're not limited to a geographical area the way they were in the Old Testament, the, 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 the nation of Israel. Now, after the cross, God's people are, are everywhere, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Not only that, but we also saw that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul starts taking literal place names, and he starts applying them symbolically to other things, to, to the church and these kinds of things. So here we're, we're dealing with the end of time. And so when we see this, this term, the beautiful land, we know that we're dealing with something symbolic. It's not speaking of literal Israel. Uh, when we speak of Edom and Moab, these are countries that don't exist anymore. Ammon, they don't exist anymore. And so we know that we're speaking of spiritual things here. The Libya and the Cushites as well, we're dealing with symbols. And so what do these symbols mean? The beautiful land. We looked at that one last. Uh, we looked at that one last a uh, couple weeks ago. The beautiful land is a symbol for the church. The church. Paul starts applying these terms of Israel, of Jerusalem, 
of Mount Zion, these kinds of things that referred specifically to Israel, he now starts applying them to the church. Do you remember that? To the church. So when we're speaking here that the king of the north will come, he will invade the beautiful land, the beautiful land being the church. The idea that the Bible is telling us is that the king of the north or the Roman church or the, or the pontiff of Rome will present himself as the leader of Christianity, of God's people. Protestants and evangelicals included, not just Catholic. Now, what's interesting is that he's already presenting himself that way. The Pope and the Roman church already views themselves, they view themselves as the church, as the mother church. And there is no salvation outside of the communion of the Roman Catholic church. So he's already presenting himself as this. It's just a matter of Protestants and evangelicals recognizing him as such. And so a few years ago, Christianity Today dedicated a whole issue to Pope Francis. Why everyone is flocking to Francis. They also had another article entitled, From Antichrist to Brother in Christ. You see, the writers of Christianity Today are very well aware that at one time, all Protestants and evangelicals viewed the Pope, viewed the Roman church as the Antichrist, the Bible prophecy. And in this article, they were documenting the change in, in evangelical and in Protestant attitudes towards Catholicism and the Pope. Lifeway Pew did a research, and they found that more than half of evangelical pastors, more than half meaning 62%, 62% of evangelical pastors view the Pope as their brother in Christ. More than one-third, that is 42%, more than one-third, 42% of Protestant pastors say that they value Pope Francis's views on theology. Protestant evangelicals. Christians who are named for protesting against the very faith of the Pope, they are now saying we value his theology and his views. Why, why the change? Why the change in Protestant and evangelical views on the Pope? It's a wonder that about 50 years ago, there was a presidential candidate John F. Kennedy, and we were questioning his fitness for office simply because he was a Catholic. And we were asking ourselves the question, where would his loyalty be to the church or to the people of the United States? Merely 50 years ago, we were so Protestant in our views. What has changed now? Now, it says here, the reason for this change is that disagreements over religious authority and theology um, and salvation, disagreements over these things, they fade because piety trumps doctrine. That's what they say. Piety trumps doctrine. And you've got to hand it, our, you know, the, the Pope here, Pope Francis, he's a great guy. You know, he's a great guy. He says great things. He's doing wonderful things. Um, he's, he's really different, really charismatic. Um, he's actually apologizing. That's huge. That's huge for the church. The church doesn't really apologize. He's apologizing. Uh, he's, he's promoting love. He's promoting peace. He's promoting harmony. Let's talk. Let's, let's, um, let, let's, let's figure out the problems. 
Um, and, and you can't deny that. That's a, that's a positive impact. Our previous pope wasn't uh, looked upon too favorably. Um, you know, some people thought he was a, you know, he was a little bit stiff. Um, but Pope Francis, wow, just so charismatic. And so people are saying piety trumps a doctrine. Is that true? Yes. And no. Yes and no. For example, uh, you know, I, can, uh, I can join with Catholics in doing good things for the community. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was down in Tampa, and we were at a, a Catholic uh, mission. It was called Trinity Cafe, and, uh, and I participated there with helping them feed the homeless. It was a great thing, right? That, that doesn't mean I can join in doing something good with them. I can, join in, I can join with Catholics. I can join with secular people even in doing good things and helping the community, but it doesn't mean that doctrine isn't important. It doesn't mean I'm all of a sudden going to you know, change my beliefs. It doesn't mean I'm going to become secular just because I'm, I'm working with secular people. Piety trumps doctrine, yes and no. Doctrine still matters. Truth, Bible truth, still matters. And it seems that people don't, don't get it. In fact, as I'm looking out at you today, it, it, it seems you don't get it. And, and people are asking, well, why, why, Jonathan, are you speaking out against the Pope? Why... Why are you speaking against the church? Why are you speaking against what they believe? What's, what's the big deal? Leave them alone. Well, first of all, we're not speaking against people. I'm sure the Pope is a wonderful man, an incredible man, a man of faith. I have no reason to, to think otherwise. I know that there are millions of wonderful Catholic believers out there, godly Catholic believers who are doing incredible things, wonderful things in this world. We're not speaking against people. We're not against people. But we do believe that there is truth and we do believe that there is error. And not only do we believe there is truth in error, but we also believe that it makes a difference what you believe. When the Bible says one thing, and then we have an institution, whether religious or secular, that actively says, teaches, and promotes something other than what the Bible says, I think we have to talk about that. I think we have to call it out because we believe that truth, truth makes a difference. What kind of difference? Well, let me throw this out there and you can do what you want with it. Remember, it was Catholic thought and Catholic practice that led the Western world into the dark ages. And it was Protestant thought and Protestant principles and Protestant values that led the Western world out of the darkness and into the Enlightenment, into the Reformation, into the Renaissance, into what we see today. When we look at the countries which have a largely Catholic background or Catholic heritage, even those countries which have a pagan heritage. And then we compare those countries with other countries that have a largely Protestant heritage. There's a huge difference. 
Huge difference. Huge difference regarding the stability and the efficiency of the government. A huge difference regarding the stability and the prosperity of the economy and of the citizens of those countries. There is a difference. And here in this country, we're benefiting from the values and the principles of Protestantism. And, and, and because we're benefiting from it, God speaks about blessing the second and the third and the fourth generation. We, we are indeed a blessed country here because of the foundational principles upon which we were established. But because we're in blessing and because we're in prosperity, when different ideologies come in and when different ideologies enter the picture, it's hard to distinguish and see what their result is. We think all is well, and it's hard to see what's really happening and what's really behind those ideas. But truth, my friends, truth makes a difference. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with them at www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.